read this morning from Genesis beginning in chapter 29, verse 31, and we'll read through chapter 30, verse 24. Genesis 29, beginning in verse 31, hear the word of the Lord. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, Here is my maid, Bilhah, go into her, and she will have a child on my knees, that I also may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob his wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, A troop comes. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. Now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, Therefore he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Victor Hugo, the 19th century French author, famous for his novels, The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables, once wrote, Religions do a useful thing. They narrow God to the limits of man. 
Philosophy replies by doing a necessary thing. It elevates man to the plane of God. Well, New England Puritan John Norton disagreed about 200 years before Hugo wrote that, saying, Though nothing is more manifestly known than that God is, yet nothing is more difficultly known than what God is. Philosophy is here dumb or worse. Simonides, being asked what God was, asks a day's time to answer the question. At that day's end, he asks two. At the end of these two, he asks four, and so often doubling the time. Being asked the reason thereof, because, says he, the longer I study, the more difficult I find the question. Sam Renahan writes in his book, Deity and Decree, and says, There is no genus of which God is a species. There is no category of which God is an example. There is only one true and living God. There is no other. God is one. God is unique. The scriptures tell us in Psalm 100, Know that the Lord is God indeed. Without our aid he did us make. We are his flock, he doth us feed, and for his sheep he doth us take. In other words, the Lord is God, and we are not. He is unique. He is singular as God. There is none like him. Speaking through the prophet Isaiah, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Well, this morning, as we contemplate the birth of Jacob's sons, we're confronted with this reality. The Lord is God, and we are not. His ways are high above our ways. He alone has the power to carry out his perfect will. We don't have a perfect will. And we don't have the power to carry out our will perfectly. In the past, Jacob has certainly made an effort to carry out his will. He's taken matters into his own hands, and by uh, his own efforts, he has secured the birthright and the blessing. Of course, uh, he wouldn't have been allowed to do that had it not been according to God's will. But, But... He has worked for these things. He's even, uh, by his own labor, obtained two wives. But in our text this morning, we begin to see his family growing as he has children. And remember that God had promised him a multitude of descendants, saying in, in Genesis twenty-eight fourteen, also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. And our text this morning shows the beginning of the fulfillment of this promise With Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, and with his father, Isaac, only one son had been chosen by God to inherit the promises. But things are different now. All of Jacob's sons will take part in the blessing of the covenant. All of them will inherit the promises of the land, the covenant relationship with God. And though only one of them will receive the promise of the Messiah being born through his line, the others all have an interest in that coming Messiah because he, that will be the line of the kings of the nation. Jacob's name will soon be changed to Israel. And so his children, the children of Jacob, will be known to future generations as the children of Israel. 
So let's look at this narrative of the birth of the children of Jacob and see what we can learn from the scriptures concerning them, what, what Jacob and his wives learned from their births, and most importantly, what God would have us to learn from these events. And my central thesis this morning has already been stated, the Lord is God and we are not. And there are several ways in which that lesson is taught in the birth of Jacob's children. First, consider Jacob's wives in this narrative. Uh, Leah, the older sister, was not the wife that Jacob had uh, desired and chosen for himself. He was tricked and deceived into marrying her. He then immediately marries Rachel, the, the woman that he had loved, the younger sister. And the text tells us in verse 30, Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban still another seven years. So this is not a great situation for Leah. Right? She's in this situation where her and her sister share the same husband, and their husband loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. And so verse 31 then tells us, When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now the King James translates this to say that Leah was hated rather than unloved, which is very close to the same thing. R.C. Sproul says that this is a word that in context means loved less, not that Jacob maliciously detested her. It's with the same sense that Christ tells us later in the Gospels that we are to hate our father and our mother in comparison to how we love him. Bill Mounts in his Hebrew dictionary defines this word in two ways. He says actively it can be defined as someone who is opposed as an adversary and hated or passively as someone who is shunned or ignored. Well, I think that both senses are probably true here. Jacob loved Rachel, desired her as his wife, and he was likely giving her most of his attention and affection. He ignoring Leah by contrast. Rachel, though, very likely resented her sister. Her and Jacob loved each other and intended to get married and start a family, and then Leah swoops in and becomes the first wife, complicates this marriage to the man that Rachel loved. She likely viewed her as an adversary, as competition. Now, Leah, for her own part is no doubt envious of her sister, who we're told was more beautiful in every way and who their husband actually desires. It makes a mess of the family affairs. And as Arthur Pink noted, no reflecting Christian mind can read through this chapter without being disgusted with the fruitage and consequences of polygamy as therein described. The Holy Spirit sets before us an example of what a plurality of wives must necessarily result in, discord, jealousy, and hatred. Jacob's household is rather a mess. His wives are competing with one another. They're they're giving him their maids, uh, multiplying the polygamy and the sin. But notice the Lord's actions in the midst of this. He saw... Leah's situation and acted on her behalf. He opened her womb and closed Rachel's. Now remember back in chapter 16 when uh, Sarah had given her maid Hagar to Abraham. Hagar bore a son and and became pregnant with a son and Sarah was treating Hagar poorly. 
treating her harshly. And so Hagar fled from Sarah. In the wilderness, God speaks with her. And then we read in in Genesis 16, verse 13, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, El-Hroi. You are the God who sees. God saw Hagar in her affliction. And just as he then saw Hagar in her distress, he now sees Leah in hers, and he opens her womb. And so we read in verse 32, So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. And so as we read through this narrative, we're told uh, by the words of the mother as each son is born what the name actually means. The Lord has seen my affliction. And so the name Reuben means see or behold a son. I don't know if this first conception was from that first night that Jacob and Leah spent together at the wedding feast. But, but in any case, Jacob seems to, to spend more time with Leah now because she bears him three more sons in quick succession, Simeon, Levi, and then Judah. And then notice Rachel's response to this turn of events in verse 1 of chapter 30. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Now, God saw Leah and had compassion on her. Rachel sees Leah bearing sons when she herself is barren, and she has only envy in her heart. So she complains to Jacob, insisting that he do something about it. Of course, Jacob doesn't have the power to do anything about it. Puritan Thomas Boston wrote this. He says, How often do we cry out of insufferable affliction? Yet we do bear up under it for all that, and would bear the better if we could be content and quiet under it. A meek and quiet spirit makes a light cross, for a proud, unsubdued spirit lays a great weight upon every cross. As Rachel's unquiet spirit made the want of children wonderfully heavy, which others go very quietly and contentedly under. Leah seems to have borne her affliction in relative silence, but Rachel cries out, and she causes anger to flare up between her and the husband that she loved. She causes contention in the marriage, not just between her and her sister because of her envy, but now between her and Jacob. She didn't submit herself to the hand of God, but she gave herself to envy and drove her husband to anger. And so Jacob responds in verse 2, Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Now Jacob's response seems to indicate, uh, uh, in some sense, he's rebuking his wife. She should be taking her cry to God, not to him. It appears that perhaps she has not sought the Lord in prayer as she should have at this point. She will eventually learn to trust God and to make her plea to Him. But here she she just lashes out in, in her envy and in her sin. And then Rachel takes a play out of Sarah's playbook. She, she doesn't take the rebuke uh, from her husband and turn to God in prayer. Instead, she follows the example of Sarah and she sends Jacob into her maid to have children that way. 
In the case of Sarah and Hagar, the son, Ishmael, who was born, was excluded from the inheritance in the land. But in this case, all of Jacob's offspring will inherit. Uh, and so Rachel's maid, Bilhah, bears two sons for Jacob, Dan and Nephtali. And then we read in verse 9, When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as wife. So Jacob once again goes along with this plan, and Zilpah has two sons, Gad and Asher. Then we come to an interesting little exchange that happens. By this point, Jacob has eight sons. Now, if we assume, we don't know the exact timing of this, but if we assume about one child per year, then the oldest, Reuben, would be about six or seven years old at this point. And so this young child goes out, uh, we're told in verse 14, and when Reuben went in the days of the wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah, then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Now, exactly what this plant or this fruit is that Reuben found uh, is not clear. The word only appears here and in the Song of Solomon, where we read, the mandrakes give off a fragrance, and at our gates are pleasant fruits. Uh, The Hebrew word just simply means love plant. And no commentator that I read this week was certain exactly what it was. Now, whatever it was, Rachel wanted it. And some seem to think that it was believed that this plant, this fruit, would promote fertility. And and that may be so. I don't know. If it is, I kind of think Leah might not have shared it so readily. But perhaps that is why Rachel wanted it. Whatever the case, Rachel wanted this fruit. And, And the poetic irony that we talked about last week is on full display here. Jacob had purchased the birthright for a bowl of stew and then later deceived his father with a plate of food in order to get the blessing. Now his wives barter a bowl of fruit for a night spent with Jacob in hopes of bearing him another son. And it's not even Jacob that they desire so much as it is the prestige of having a son. Jacob is only the means to that end. And as we read the narrative of this chapter, it becomes clear that the envy between the women isn't so much uh, for Jacob's love. There's some of that, but primarily it seems to be uh, for the honor of bearing him children. Now, remember that Jacob, when he had arrived in Haran, had told Laban all these things. This likely includes the promise of a multitude of descendants who would inherit a kingdom and bring forth the promised Messiah of God. And so the women are contending for that honor. They want to be the mother of the nation. They want to be the mother of the Messiah. Jacob is simply a means to an end. And so he is bought for a bowl of fruit. It's poetic irony. But the deal is struck, and Jacob spends the night with Leah. And then in verse 17 we read, And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Now, did you catch that? God listened to Leah. She had been praying about this. God heard and answered her prayer. And so she bears two more sons and a daughter to Jacob. These are Issachar, Zebulun, and Dinah. Now, Jacob has other daughters. Uh, Whether they came in between some of these sons or later, we don't know. But when we get to chapter 37, when he believes that Joseph is dead because of the deception that his sons deceive him with, 
It says in chapter 37, verse 35, And all his sons and all his daughters arose and comforted him. So Jacob had other daughters. When we get to chapter 46, when Jacob is moving his household down to Egypt, we read this, His sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. So Jacob obviously has other daughters other than Dinah. We don't know when they were born to him. It's possible some of them were born during the time encompassed in this chapter, but they're not named. So why is this particular daughter named? Well, we'll find out in a few weeks when we get to chapter 34. Dinah plays an important role in the history. But the point is, God answered Leah's prayer and gave her more children. Now, after Dinah is born, we then read in verse 22, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. Now, the fruit that Rachel had bargained for, if it was intended uh, to be used as some sort of fertility enhancement, had not done its work because Leah has had three children since that fruit was bartered for. It's been uh, maybe three years or more. Uh, And so Rachel seems to have turned to God in prayer during this time. And God listens to her. He has compassion on her, and he opens her womb. Verse 23, and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. God had taken away the reproach that Rachel suffered in her barrenness, and she is confident that God will give her another son, and he later will. Joseph is the 11th son born to Jacob. Benjamin will be the 12th, but he won't be born for another five chapters in several years. But during the course of uh, the time covered in this chapter, maybe 12 years or so, uh, the births of 11 sons and at least one daughter, Leah and Rachel, have both learned that God is the one who controls the womb. They've learned the truth of Psalm 127. One's sons are gifts The Lord's reward. By him, the womb bears fruit. The children of one's youth are like the arrows warriors shoot. And since that is true, no matter how they strove with one another, no matter how they connived, no matter what uh, folk remedies they used, it was God who opened and closed the womb. Leah and Rachel learned to trust God in prayer because they learned that the Lord is God and we are not. There's nothing they could do, nothing Jacob could do to get them pregnant. It was up to God. Now, Jacob seems to have learned this lesson a little sooner than his wives did, at least sooner than Rachel did. From verse 30 and 31, it's clear that he loved and preferred Rachel over Leah. It seems apparent that he was planning to establish his family with her. But then it became clear that Rachel was barren and God had opened Leah's womb. And so Jacob seems to have come to some sort of peace with what God was doing. So when Rachel lashes out in anger towards him, he responds and says, Am I in the place of God? It's God that has closed your womb. Jacob recognized that it was out of his hands. God had willed that Rachel be barren and Leah be fruitful, and so Jacob had submitted himself to that. The Lord is God and we are not. Jacob knew he couldn't do anything about it. It depended on the will of God, not the will of man. Our culture seems to have forgotten this lesson. We think that we are God. 
there's a bit of poetic justice that was in the news this past week. I don't know if you saw it or not, but God created man and woman. He created them to relate to one another in a certain way with the husband as the head of the household. Our culture for several decades now has rejected this idea. They've called it patriarchy, which isn't a bad word. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're referred to as patriarchs in the scripture. But our culture has assigned a negative value or connotation to that word, patriarchy, and rejected the idea of male headship. Radical feminism arose in the 60s and the 70s and led that charge. And this past week, that rebellion against God's design for men and women received a bit of poetic justice. President Biden gave an award for woman of courage to a man wearing a dress on International Women's Day. Now, if that isn't poetic justice, I don't know what is. Our culture rejected God's design for man and woman, and in the name of freeing women from patriarchy, in the name of giving women equal status with men, our culture now gives awards for women to men who are deluded into thinking that they're women. It's the insanity of sin, and it just proves the point that the Lord is God. We are not. We can't even tell the difference between a boy and a girl anymore. There's another way that God displays his absolute sovereignty in the history of the children of Jacob. Jacob may have intended to establish his family with Rachel, but God had other designs. It's clear from the text whose designs were brought to completion, and it wasn't Jacob's. Note that Leah has six of Jacob's 12 sons. Six of them are born to Leah, the unloved wife. The maids who are here said to have been given to Jacob as wives and later in future chapters will be called concubines, they each have two sons. Rachel, last of all, has two sons. The one that Jacob would have put first, God put last. And by his power, he opened and closed the wombs of the women so that his will would be done. And it's interesting that Rachel, who is last and bears the last two sons, the two sons that she bears occupy unique places in the history of Israel. Joseph, as we'll see in coming months as we continue through the book of Genesis, will be sent to Egypt as a slave. Now, he will ultimately be used by God to preserve the entire family. He's obviously used mightily of God for that purpose, but that purpose is to preserve his brother Judah, the son of Leah, from whom the Christ will come. And in the history of the nation of Israel, you rarely hear of the tribe of Joseph. His two sons will be named Ephraim and Manasseh, but not Joseph. Most of the time, when you see a list of the 12 tribes, Joseph isn't mentioned. Now, when you get to Revelation 7, there's a list of the 144,000 from all the tribes of the children of Israel. Joseph does show up in that list alongside his son Manasseh, which means someone else is missing from that list, which is Dan the first son born to Bilhah, Rachel's maid, who is not listed there in Revelation 7. And and we'll talk about that here in a few moments. But my point is, Joseph, the firstborn of Rachel, the, the preferred wife, the preferred son, 
He figures largely in the story of the book of Genesis and then disappears quietly into obscurity for the rest of the Old Testament. He's only mentioned five more times outside of Genesis. Most of those are mentions in a historical setting when it's relating the history of the nation. But Psalm 78 is worth a mention here. For in Psalm 78, we're told, Moreover, he, the tabernacle of Joseph, did refuse. The mighty tribe of Ephraim he would in no wise choose. But he did choose Judah's tribe to be the rest above. And on Mount Zion he made choice, which he so much did love. God did not choose Joseph, the preferred son of the loved wife. Rather, he chose Judah, the son of Leah, the unloved wife. Judah would be the one through whom God would bring the Messiah into the world. Now, Rachel's second son, Benjamin, is a small tribe, has the honor of being the tribe from which Israel's first king comes, King Saul. Of course, he kind of turned out to be a horrible king, self-obsessed, disobedient to God. But again, Benjamin is somewhat redeemed, just as Joseph shows up in that list at the end in Revelation 7. Benjamin is kind of redeemed in the end for the apostle Paul is of the tribe of Benjamin. He proclaims the glory of Judah's son to the nations. Rachel will die giving birth to Benjamin, and she'll be buried by the side of the road on the way to Ephrath, that is, to Bethlehem. Leah, however, will be buried in the cave of Machpelah alongside Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob. Jacob chose Rachel, but God chose Leah. Another way that it becomes obvious that God chose Leah is not only the fact that she had six sons, but who those sons are. Rachel's sons point to God's having rejected her and chosen Leah. Leah's sons do as well. In contrast to Rachel's sons, Leah's play a very important role in the history of Israel. As we've already mentioned, her fourth son, Judah, David, will be of the tribe of Judah. He will reign over Israel as a man after God's own heart. And David's son, Solomon, will follow him on the throne to reign during a period of great prosperity and temple building. And finally, of course, David's greater son, Christ, the anointed one of God, son of God and the son of man, the second Adam, the hope of all mankind, the promised redeemer, God in the flesh, is descended from the unloved wife. But in addition to Judah, Leah's third son, Levi, is also important. Moses and Aaron will be of the tribe of Levi. And that tribe will be taken by God to serve as priests and caretakers of the temple. Jacob might have chosen Rachel, but God chose to work through Leah. The Lord is God and we are not. In the first letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul writes and says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, Not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him 
you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. The things which are despised, God has chosen, so that no flesh can glory in his presence. God fulfilled his promise to Jacob, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, And that begins here in chapter 29 and 30 of Genesis. But he chose to do it primarily through the wife that was despised and unloved so that no flesh could take the glory for it, but rather they would glory in the Lord who opens and closes the womb. The Lord had done this. He chose a relatively small nation, ethnic Israel, so that no flesh could take the glory for the coming salvation of the nations. In Deuteronomy, we're told the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. God chose a family with multi-generational barrenness and made them into a nation to bring forth the Messiah for the salvation of the nations, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Lord is God, and we are not. Now, there's one further way in which the Lord demonstrates in this text his supreme sovereignty, his majesty, and his glory over all the details of creation. And it is in the naming of Jacob's sons. As each son is born, the circumstances surrounding his birth, what his mother is feeling at the time, are recorded for us along with the meaning of his name. So we're told the name and what, what it means, why he was given that name. As Arthur Pink notes, nothing in Scripture is trivial or meaningless. It is to be feared that many of us dishonor God's word by the unworthy thoughts which we entertain about it. We're free to acknowledge that much in the Bible is supreme and divine, and yet there is not a little in it in which we can see no beauty or value. But that is due to the dimness of our vision and not in any wise to an imperfection in the word. In other words, the Holy Spirit didn't inspire these words by accident or for no reason. He recorded them for our benefit and for his glory. The Lord works in the details. And we don't have time to delve into all the details of the naming of Jacob's sons, but it's worth a brief review We know that names in the Bible are important. They have meaning. Uh, We've seen this in Abraham and Jacob and Esau. This is why God often changes someone's name to reflect the change that occurs in them as a result of their relationship to God. Simon, short for Simeon, means the Lord hears, is changed to Peter, a stone signifying that he will be used as a building block laid against the chief cornerstone, who is Christ. And so God also changed Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, 
father of a multitude. We'll soon see God change Jacob, one who takes the heel, to Israel. We'll talk about the significance of that name when we get to chapter 32. But all of Jacob's sons' names have meaning, and that meaning is significant. And the fascinating thing is just how significant their names are on multiple levels. The names are significant to the mother and what she is feeling and experiencing at the time of the birth, but they're also significant in a prophetic way to the future of the nation of Israel and in a typological way pointing at Christ, who as we have seen before is the scope, the target at which all of Scripture is aimed. So just consider the the first four sons born to Leah, begin in verse 32 of chapter 29. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. So the name Reuben means see or behold a son. Leah gave him that name because the Lord had seen or looked on her affliction and had compassion on her. Then in verse 33, then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon means the Lord hears or the Lord has heard. Now consider that in the history of the nation of Israel, when God delivers Jacob's descendants from slavery in Egypt, he speaks to Moses from the burning bush. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Reuben, the Lord has seen my affliction. Simeon, the Lord has heard my cry. But Reuben means see, behold, a son. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. In Jeremiah, we read that God will establish a new covenant, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So God delivered them from Egypt that they might be joined to him as a wife is joined to her husband. Verse 34, she conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Levi means attached or joined. And when Moses first meets with Pharaoh, he tells him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, a feast in the national life of Israel meant worship and praise. Verse 35, And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing Judah's name means praise. And we could follow the meaning of Jacob's sons throughout the history of Israel from the time of the Exodus through the division of the kingdom after Solomon. The names are prophetically significant in the life of the nation. And we'll see that again when we get to the end of Genesis as Jacob blesses his sons. But consider how all of this points at Christ as well. On the Mount of Transfiguration, God speaks out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Reuben, Simeon, behold a son. The Lord hears. 
Christ is pictured for us as a bridegroom in John 3, and the church joined to him as his bride in Revelation 21. Levi, my husband, will be joined to me. Why? That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Paul writes in Ephesians, Judah, praise. And again, you could take all the names of Jacob's sons in order, and you would get something like this. Behold, a son, one who hears us and became attached to us. Praise the Lord. He judged our struggle and brought us good fortune, happiness, and the reward of dwelling with him. For he added to us, added us to his family and has called us the sons of his right hand. Those are the names of Jacob's sons in order. How amazing is that? And it gets Even more interesting, if we consider again the list of tribes presented to us in Revelation chapter 7, there the the list is somewhat different. As I said, Dan is not included. Joseph is, along with his son Manasseh, whose name means to make me forget. So if we take the list of tribes in Revelation 7 and the order in which they occur in that list, we would get something like this. Praise the Lord. He has looked on me and given me good fortune. Happy am I in my wrestling. God is making me to forget. God hears me and is joined to me. He has purchased me a dwelling and will add to me the son of his right hand. It's an apt and fitting description for those who have been sealed by God as his people in Christ. Dan is excluded from that list because there is no judgment or condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No human author could arrange such a thing, that the sons of Jacob would be named in this way, that their names and the reasons for those names would prophetically foreshadow the history of the nation who would be descended from them that the meaning of their names would point forward to the one who is at the center of all Scripture and even describe the people of God at the end of time. What a testimony to the sovereignty of God over every detail, the names of 12 boys in ancient history, to the words their mother spoke at their birth, to the sealing of God's people at the end of time. The Lord is God, and we are not. So what are we to do with all of this? Well, we're to learn the lesson that Jacob, Rachel, and Leah learned in the birth of their sons. When we are despised and rejected by men as Leah was, we can rest confident that God sees our affliction and hears our cries and will deliver us in the end. We may not see a way out of our present circumstances, but He does. When we suffer the reproach of others, because of some failure to attain the measure of success as they define it, as Rachel experienced in her barrenness, we can rest assured that God will hear our humble cry and will use us for His glory, despite what others may think. When the circumstances of life seem beyond our control, when we feel powerless to change our situation, God is not powerless. He is fully in control of every detail. And though his plans may differ from ours, as they did from Jacob's, we can rest assured that his plans are better than ours. For the Lord is God, and we are not. So let us humble ourselves and cry out to God as Leah and Rachel learned to do. And I'll close with these words from Psalm chapter 9. Sing praise to the Lord who in Zion does dwell. Among all the peoples his great doings tell. 
When blood he avenges, his memory is clear. The cry of the poor never fades from his ear. Lord, see what I suffer from malice and hate. Have mercy, O lift me away from death's gate. And gates of the daughter of Zion I'll praise, rejoicing in your mighty power to save. The nations are sunk in the pit they prepared. Their foot in the net which they hid is ensnared. The Lord by his judgment has made himself known. He catches the wicked in snares of their own. The wicked to death's realm of darkness are brought, all nations who would not keep God in their thoughts. Forgotten no longer the cause of the weak, nor perished forever the hope of the meek. Arise, Lord, that man may not make himself strong. Let nations be judged in your presence for wrong. O Lord, put your fear and your terror in them. Let nations know truly that they are but mere men. The Lord is God, and we are not. Let's pray.